Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Hello and welcome to another show packed with some really good advice on property buying and selling. You know, if I said to you that you could get access to a report that identifies the top property investment locations for this year, you'd have to be excited, wouldn't you? Well, Bushy Martin in this week's show has got just that for you. We'll give you that in a moment. He'll also be joined by Brad Beer from BMT Tax Depreciation with some really great tips on improving your tax return. And Mike Day returns with Bushy for the second part of his really interesting two-part update on urbanising the burbs. And as if that's not enough, Bushy has the last word on getting crisscrossed by the banks. He'll explain. But first up, here is Bushy with why the next one to five years will matter most to property investors. Welcome. Now, for those of us who've been involved in property for any length of time, we know that long-term investing over 15 to 20 years or more is how true financial freedom is actually achieved. However, today's guest, Arjun Paliwal, who's the founder of Investikit and Property Nerds, is suggesting that the next one to five years will actually matter the most. I'm really looking forward to digging into the subject. So welcome back to the show to discuss this, Arjun. Thanks for having me on again. Terrific, Arjun. Now, Arjun, uh, I know that property nerds have been doing a lot of research around property value growth over the last 30 years. What did you find? It was very interesting because there were a couple of myths that ended up getting busted upon the review. The first was this feeling of many cities being long-term more superior than another market. And why I talk about that is we often are led to believe that whether it's our biggest cities from a population level or whether it's our biggest cities from income or infrastructure spend level, we're quickly led to believe that they must be the golden cities for property growth. However, when you look back from five-year intervals or 10-year intervals, the first, second and third place positioning of markets is constantly changing. And so what that means is that it's actually really about the next one to five years, not this magical long-term that everyone talks about. And yes, there's gonna be a couple of scenarios we need to put an asterisk next to when it comes to certain undiversified towns and so forth from the volatility of what a one to five year up or down swing could look like. But in the long-term of things, if we just take an example of say, you know, Perth and Darwin, just to name two markets, they have moved in that average of 5% plus per annum, right, over the last 30 years. So when these 5% plus per annum movements happen, they're very similar to some of our Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide's and, and other parts who also move in that 5 to 7% plus per annum. Now you talk about say half a percent increase here or half percent increase here being 5.5 versus a five and how that makes a big difference over 30 years when you add it up. Sure, but at the same time, there's inflationary changes. So even then it's kind of being attacked anyway. So what I came to learn was that the different cities that we think may outperform 
only do so for certain time periods and then other cities tend to have their different turns. And in the long term, we don't see a huge variance in performance between many of our cities, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I guess picking up on your point there, while if you're investing for 30 years, it doesn't matter so much, but where it does matter is that that early growth by focusing on what's happening in the short to medium term, the one to five year timeline that you're talking about, then if you're looking for the equity growth that's going to enable you to then leverage into additional properties, then that that next five years becomes very important in that's that scheme of things. It's, it's very crucial. It's extremely crucial because if we look at, at any market in a five-year period, we're often throwing into our compound, compound calculators the easy 5% or 6% or 7% per annum and whack, that's how wealthy we get in 10 years from now. But the truth yeah. is markets do not move in that linear fashion. Um, when we dissected a typical, say, 10 to 15-year window of a market, that boom that we're really looking for is actually responsible for most of that averaged out 5 to 7% we often find when a large uptick does happen, it tends to on average run for two and a half to four and a half years. Yeah. Yes, there are the exceptions to the rule, one being Hobart, which has had an extremely strong six year run of close to double digits every single year, but most do tend to sit in that two and a half to four and a half year window. So that means, well, if we're talking about this 5% per annum for 10 years and we're only seeing such great uplift for say a two and a half to four and a half year time period, it then means that we do see a lot of stagnation and periods of decline that can come up in between. It's very few out of our many markets in the country that see this consistent year on year, five to 7%. Um, many of our markets actually have different you know, levels of volatility and it's not this, the bigger the city or the smaller the city, this volatility increases. There's so many influencing factors. So yeah, if you were to be in a period of five years and felt that, just because you're investing here for the long term, you would have missed out on many opportunities to continue that scaling of a portfolio if you'd gone in with the simple approach of the long term only. Yeah, interesting. So in that context then, Arjun, where can the one to five year decisions go wrong, do you think? I feel they go wrong when, when we consider purely limited options. So the one to five year rule really does improve the more options that you have in front of you. So to give you an example, if an, if an investor looked at, say, the market of you know, Brisbane between the years of 2011 and 2015, sure, you might look back and say that you've achieved great affordable prices in comparison to the growth going now. But at the same time, Sydney and Melbourne prices phenomenally outperformed during that window. On the flip side, if someone in 2016 or 17 is looking back at this phenomenal performance of Sydney and felt that this is where they must continue, they would have seen four to five years of very little growth. Whereas if someone went to the markets of your Hobart, for example, um, or other regional cities, they've massively outperformed Sydney from a regional New South Wales versus Sydney, just looking at those two or your Hobart versus Sydney. So this just shows you that if you are limiting your options to the typical backyard and not looking at markets like an investor should, for as many options as possible to make the best decision for your portfolio, you increase the chances of you having that opportunity cost with limited growth after a certain cycle period. Yeah, no, very well said. So uh, what can investors do then to optimize the next one to five years, Arjun? I think once you've now got yourself in a position of having multiple markets, 
the next thing from being broad and, and having that mindset to be open is to actually now assess the market for its key health, you know, across those, in, you know, indicators of demand, supply, sentiment, confidence, all of these things that come together, um, whether it's inventory levels, changing policy, uh, interest rates, infrastructure, all of these different factors come together. But when you're in a scenario where you have so many more options as markets, you've already started on the right note. And then when you start dissecting each of them, you start to look at it and go, okay, this is painting a much clearer picture between the opportunities. Another thing I like to suggest is removing the labels. We often use words like regionals, capitals, big city, small city, when in fact, if we just look at anywhere in a capital city, you may invest. If you really put it down to a what influenced that property in say a, a Western suburb of Adelaide, as a small example, the Northeast of Adelaide and what's happening there is unlikely to influ influence what's happening for properties in the West, which means that this whole chase or love affair we have with the big city has actually made no difference because everything that's making a difference to your property in the Western suburbs of Adelaide is likely circled in and around that. So in fact, we're all investing in regional cities. Every time you buy a property, you're investing in something the size of a regional city. So it's likely that if you're influencing factors are that small, you should really be removing the labels and, and looking at markets all over. Yeah, brilliantly said. And some, some very uh, uh, mind-opening and motivating thoughts there, Arjun. I really appreciate you coming on the show to share those with us today. Anytime, my friend. Thanks, Arjun. Well, it's, it's quite clear that uh, you really need to be objective and remove your preconceptions when it comes to property. And uh, there's, there's no better way to do that than to take advantage of the great work that Property Nerds is doing around the analysis of uh, good locations for investment moving forward. So uh, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, uh, just go to propertynerds.com.au and make sure that you grab a copy of their premium report on the top 20 investment locations for 2021. It's a must read. Stay with us for more here on Realty Talk. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Welcome. Now, the Australian Tax Office has performed a review of individual tax returns and found that an astounding 90% of property owners are making mistakes. So if you're a property investor who wants to optimise your tax position, we're joined today to talk about this by the CEO of the leading tax appreciation company in the country, BMT, and he's also a national board member with PICA, the Property Investment Council of Australia. So uh, welcome back to the show, Brad. Thanks, Bushy. As always, great to be here, talking tax and property. <laughs> yeah, your favourite subject, mate, and uh, you're a font of knowledge when it comes to that. Brad, um, just to kick it off then, what are some of the most common errors that the ATO found that property investors are making? Look, uh, the ATO, number one area, uh, error they've found is around loan interest being incorrectly claimed. Uh, there's a few um, 
issues around that. And I guess the, the, the core one is if it's not used for investment purposes, it's no longer deductible interest. You know, adding that car to the, to the property investment loan uh, is not a deductible expense for interest. And I think people get caught on redraw of money and things using it for other stuff. But the biggest uh, mistake has been loan interest. The second biggest one they talk about is borrowing expenses and not, you know, some of the borrowing expenses, expenses um, from when you do take out the loan. They're not all instantly deductible. Some of them need to be amortised over five years. And so uh, borrowing expenses is the second biggest one. And the third, um, claiming things as repairs and maintenance as opposed to improvements. Um, repairs are repairs and, uh, uh, and maintenance are claimable straight away. Improvements need to be claimed over time. So they're the biggest mistakes. And they, the ATO, the more they spend auditing people, the more money they find they get back because of these. And, you know, often they're, they're probably genuine mistakes, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, having a good understanding and making sure they claim properly, obviously, is, uh, is very important. Yeah, no, good run down there. Now, uh, just sort of digging in a bit deeper to something you just touched on there, because when it comes to tax deductions, there are significant differences between repairs, maintenance and capital improvements. Can you start by drilling in a bit more to the difference in the definitions between those three? Well, yeah, Bushy, repairs, uh, it, uh, I mean, and the big reason this comes about is that repairs and maintenance are claimable instantly straight away in the year you incur them. So 100% deduction is way better than what's called a capital improvement that needs to be depreciated over time, seven years, 10 years, some things 40 years. Um, yeah. Repair is about when you fix something. It's, 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 um, it's broken, it's worn out, and it needs to be actually fixed. Uh, maintenance, keeping it in good condition, you know, things like, you know, uh, painting it so it's so it doesn't um, get ruined by more water in the bathroom, for example. Paint flakes off, um, dampness gets in, plasterboard gets wrecked, and things like that. So maintaining the property maintenance. Uh, once again, maintenance instantly deductible. Capital improvements, anything that you do to basically improve the property, whether it be and that uh, improving with a new better fence as opposed to repairing a hole in the fence. Is, also, is an improvement. A new hot water service, even though you had one, um, it's a new one, not a 15-year-old one or however old it is when it breaks down. Um, so anything that's a, a, an improvement needs to be uh, capitalised and depreciated over either its effective life, which is either the, the full 40 years like the building itself, or over the actual life of the item if it's a plant and equipment item. So look, we, um, we, we play with putting things in the right category. Different um, people try to claim repairs for things that may, you know, then tax often in property has some of these gray areas as to whether it should be a repair or otherwise. Um, we come up with the costs, we wanna play, um, uh, play with the accountant's um, recommendations on what should be done either way. Yeah, well, uh, you, again, you've, you've touched on some of the key points there, but just to really uh, ram home uh, the, the importance here. Can you just reinforce and spell out the, the differences in the tax treatment between those three, between the repairs, maintenance and capital improvements again? So repairs and maintenance, instant deduction in the year to do them. So the more of those things, look, if it can be a repair, great. We want it to be. Think about repairing it or maintaining it. But if we do improve it, we need to actually, um, it's, a, it's in its capital of nature, then it needs to be depreciated over uh, the time it should be depreciated. That can be different, but it can be sometimes 40 years. 
So, you know, things that are structural, et cetera, usually have what's called a 40-year life. If it's a new plant item, it might be claimed over 12 years or 10 years or whatever number of years the tax office puts on those. But instant deduction versus over time. So the more we can get us repairs and maintenance, obviously the better, but there's rules around what is and what is not. Important thing to consider with repairs and maintenance also is doing them straight after you've bought the property, uh, they'd become not deductible. You don't want to go in and think you're going to repair a whole bunch of stuff because your purchase price will have reflected the condition of the things you bought. So trying to you know, fix things straight away and get into the deductions before you've rented it out um, is also a bit of a tax office no-no there. Yeah, that's and there's some uh, quite fine distinctions there, Brad. So I appreciate you sort of drilling into that and some very timely reminders in what people need to be uh, thinking about uh, when they're approaching the tax treatment, because it's obviously potentially going to have quite an impact on the cash flow affordability of holding that property. So again, appreciate you uh, taking some time today to uh, refresh us on those important things, Brad. Thanks, Bushy. Always great to be here. Now, in closing, uh, you may be surprised to know that over 80% of investors miss out on thousands of dollars in depreciation. And as the leader in this space, BMT average over $9,000 of claimables in the first year. So if you haven't done already, reach out to Brad and the team at BMT to make sure that you are optimising your position. Stay with us for more here on Realty Talk. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation find residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote. Welcome. Now, as a flow on from the pandemic's impact on remote working, along with a very significant boost in new housing grants, we're seeing very strong demand for housing in new estates on the fringe of our cities, with upwards of 781,000 new dwellings required across the country in just the next four years by 2025. But there's a real danger that many new estates will lack the intimacy that's enjoyed in our existing inner cities. So to further to discuss how we can urbanise the burbs, we're joined again by leading award-winning urban planner, Mike Day from Hatch Roberts Day. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Good morning again. Thanks, Bushy. Mike, uh, I'd love you to run us through the remaining factors that you believe are going to transform housing estates. And let's start by looking at how diversity in housing is going to assist. Okay, well, Bushy, what we're finding now is there's a much greater interest by the home builders um, around the capital cities in Australia to work together with the urban development industry. I think in the past there has been quite a division between the land developers that you know subdivide land and we're laying out these residential lots. In the past, they've been it's been a bit of a monoculture as well, you know, like a five or six or seven hundred square metre lot. Whereas now affordability has really um, necessitated is reducing the, the lot size. And you have to be very careful when you do that because. Um, it creates a, you know, a, an environment where the builders then really sort of struggle if they come in after the urban developers. But, so we need to get the builders to work together with the urban developers, which is what we're seeing. And there's a number of really progressive home builders now that are starting to work together with the, with the development industry and you know, give a lot more thought to 
the way that the housing is configured. And so what's happening is you're getting a townhouse type of product, um, which enables you to sort of really to sort of take the garage off. We really need to take the garage off the front of the house because otherwise all you read as you move down a street, particularly when you're walking and cycling is, you know, a street of garages. It's very difficult then to, you know, to plant trees at a reasonable spacing because you've got all the driveways. So from a streetscape point of view, we're really ardent advocates of getting those garages at the back of the, of the houses, reinstating the front verandas. So getting that social contact on the street and, you know, really finding that nexus between the, the builders and the, and, the, and the land developers, I think is the key. Yeah, so it's sort of bringing the outdoor in, in, in through that central space is awesome. So where do open green space and destination parks fit into that plan, Mike? Okay, so a big part, a big part of these more compact neighbourhoods is if we're what we're doing is if we're starting to take the yard, you know, take the yard out of the house, the old backyard or whatever, um, you know, and we do acknowledge that there needs to be a, a declension of, of housing and building types. So we need to still provide for the, you know, the large family, and there's a lot of people now working from home. So we need to provide, you know, ample room within the home. But then there are those, particularly the single and two-person households, that might need a more modest dwelling. If we are going to take the, the yard away, we talk about the broad landscape. So if you create a series of terraces, they might need to look over a park. So these small parks are really important to us because they're almost sort of, you know, a counterpoint to the, what we used to have was the front of the backyard. And that's interesting, you know, like most people don't use their front yard. So that four or six metre front setback really has been no man's land. Whereas if we can bring the townhouses closer to the street, get a bit of vertical separation, pop the veranda on, they're looking out over the park, um, then that's going to create the amenity. And I think, and as you mentioned, you know, the indoor outdoor spaces, courtyard housing is something that we should be looking at now. So you build to the boundaries and you have an internal courtyard rather than the wasted space that we have around, you know, the side and the back or the side and the front of homes. Yeah, and I love that. Now, uh, integral to what you're talking about there and creating that sort of uh, combined sense of community, uh, I love your thoughts on why you think we need to create wider walking and cycling paths. Yeah, so what we've noticed during COVID, Bushy, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of people are getting out of their cars, particularly if they're, if they're in a compact, connected, mixed-use, walkable neighbourhood. And that's, what, that's most of the inner treasured inner neighbourhoods, the cherished inner neighbourhoods. Whereas out in the suburbs, it's been much more disconnected because we've got, you know, houses remote from workplace and the shopping centres. So if we can bring those uses back together, and that's something I think that the planning profession is starting to come to terms with now, most uses can coexist. So we've got, you know, the old shop top house and there's just great references in the old neighbourhoods. So we want to emulate some of those traditional and timeless practices and bring those back. And then what you've got, you've, what's, then what's important then is that um, you're providing pathways for pedestrians and cyclists. And we, we're classifying the pedestrians and the cyclists as the privilege mode now, to, in, in contrast to the, the car, right? So hopefully we're getting a, greater, a, a more regular bus service or a transit service. And the other thing that we're noticing is that people are getting on these electric bikes in huge numbers, you know, right through Europe, North America. We expected the trend to, to we'll, we'll follow here. The distances you can get on these electric bikes, these e-bikes is amazing, and you can get up and downhill, you know, quite easily as well. So we need, I think we need dedicated paths for both cyclists, you know, for mum and dad pushing the pram or walking the dog. We need to separate that from these the cyclists that might be commuting to work or they're on these electric bikes because they can move at a reasonably rapid rate of knots, as can the scooters, you know, these electric scooters. Yeah, Mike, there's the some... sustainability point of view, this micro-mobility or mobility, you know, on demand or as a service, we see this is an emerging trend. So this hopefully will get people out of their cars and be much more, much more healthier lifestyle. 
Mike, uh, you've got some fantastic uh, ideas there for really bringing the heart and soul back into the, the burgeoning burbs as we move forward and some sensational ideas for uh, planners, developers and councils to embrace all that. So really, I'd uh, like to thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts today. Absolute pleasure, Bushy. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. Well, there's obviously some great smart design opportunities there to urbanise the verbs, but uh, stay with us because you're watching Realty Talk. Welcome. Have you been crisscrossed by the banks? What do I mean by this? Well, I'm talking about whether you're cross-securitised or cross-collateralised. And what does this even mean? Well, cross-securitization means that all of your loans are secured against all of your properties. Now, so what I can hear you say? Well, if you're cross-securitized, you're exposing yourself to some very big risks. What are they? Well, firstly, there's the risk of losing your home. If all of your loans and all of your properties are cross-securitized and something goes belly up, the bank can come and take the keys. Secondly, Every time you make a change to your properties or to the loans, you trigger new valuations where the bank will revalue all of your properties. Now, if one of those properties gets a very conservative valuation, which was less than expectations, then there's a fair chance you won't be able to do what you intended to do. Or worse still, you may effectively have to uh, cash up from margin call where you have to uh, throw money at the banks for any shortfall that comes out of that. Thirdly, your borrowing capacity is reduced when you cross-securitise because the banks actually add a safety margin or a buffer on your existing borrowings to protect their interests. And as a consequence, you can borrow less than what you would if you had a standalone arrangement. Fourthly, you lose control and the flexibility over your properties and your loans. Now, to give you a couple of examples of just how bad cross-securitisation can be, let me start with a client who came to see us a number of years ago where they had an existing property they were looking to sell and the proceeds of that existing home were going to fund the completion of a new build home that they were uh, partway through building. Now, as soon as they got a contract uh, for the sale of their existing home, because it was cross-securitised, that triggered a valuation of the half-built home. And as you'd expect, that valuation came in very low, which meant that the bank kept all of the proceeds of the sale of the existing home, and the clients were forced to move into a half-built home without any monies to complete it. Another quick example, we had someone who'd come to, see, come to see us who had a home in Perth that they were looking to sell. And because it was cross-securitised with an investment property they had in a mining town, as soon as that contract for sale was issued uh, and the banks were notified, that triggered a valuation. And because the valuation on the investment property came in much lower uh, due to circumstances at the time, that meant that the client was not able or allowed to sell their home in Perth. So cross-securitisation can really impact you in very negative ways. Uh, and it's something that not many property owners or property borrowers are aware of. So how can you tell if you're cross-securitised? Well, very simply, if you own more than one property 
and all of your loans are with one bank, the chances are you're cross-securitized. And what can you do about this? Well, the best thing I suggest you do is either reach out to me personally or get in touch with another savvy mortgage broker and get your loans restructured to a standalone arrangement where every property and every loan is separate. And for extra protection, spread your loans across a number of lenders. So you've got one lender or one bank on your home and a different or other lenders on your investment properties. That's more food for thought. This is Bushy Martin. Stay with us for more. Thanks once again, Bushy. Well, really good advice. And you can catch more of Bushy at his Get Invested podcast. Well, that's it for another show. A very special thanks to Bushy's guests and a reminder that you can see all of our shows at realty.com.au with one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 agencies nationally. Thanks to realty.com.au and to BMT Tax Depreciation for their support. I'm Kevin Turner. I'll see you next time. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 